0: This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, please call 988 or use the resources listed in the episode description. To see the sources and other resources mentioned in this episode, you can visit psychologicallymindedpod.com. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming topics, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. And finally, please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to get new episodes as they post. Enjoy this episode! Hello and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I'm your host, Grace Fowler, and today we are going to talk about Drew Barrymore and the WGA strike. If you haven't heard in the last few months, the Writers Guild of America has been on strike and recently a few hosts of certain talk shows announced that they were going to be violating the terms of the strike by bringing their shows back on the air, even though the strike has not been resolved. I'm using Drew Barrymore as the example or focusing on her in this episode because she kind of set the trend for the other shows that came back. So after Drew Barrymore announced that her talk show was coming back, Jennifer Hudson also, I didn't know she had a show, but she announced that her show was coming back, The Talk announced they were coming back, and Bill Maher announced that his show Real Time was coming back. When she went back on her word and said that she was not bringing her show back anymore, the rest of those shows also backed off and said that they would continue to be on hiatus. I also want to say up top that I really love Drew Barrymore as an actor, and think that she's a really interesting person. I talked about her a little bit in the episode about adult st- uh, child stars as who grew up to be adults, um, with my colleague Anne Renault. If you want to listen to that episode, we talked about her a little bit because she's had a really tough life, and she really exemplifies this kind of trend of children who become very famous as child actors and then have very difficult times either adjusting into adulthood uh, or in Drew Barrymore's case, like by the time she was 13, was having to go to rehab because of the things that were going on in her life. So she's had a difficult life and I'm not doing this episode to continue to pile on her, but I do think that she highlights some interesting psychological concepts about Collective bargaining and how pressure on people of authority can work. So, I'm using her to jump off of to start this like conversation about the psychological benefits of a union. I also want to note that she did reverse her decision. She came out this week to say that her show will not resume filming after the feedback that she got. So, there's no longer any need to pile on or continue that pressure on her. When someone makes a behavior change after a request for change is made, then we don't have to keep making the request. So this is not in any way a continued pile on of her, but again, just a inciting incident for us to have a different kind of conversation. So I'm going to walk through kind of what happened if you you haven't seen her. I'm going to talk about kind of how these collective bargaining things work, and then go through some points about the psychological importance of unions, because I don't think that's a conversation that's usually had, and if anything, the source that I used for that part of the episode talks about how psychology tends to not focus a lot on things like class and labor differences, so I'm hoping to contribute a little bit with this episode. So let me back up and just provide kind of the context of what happened. So as many of you may know, in May, the Writers Guild of America went on strike over numerous concerns, including the presence of AI in things like writers rooms, the model of hiring writers that has been going on that leaves people without pay or without jobs for a long time and doesn't help them to learn the entire process of running a show. Pay rates and the woeful lack of residuals that come from streaming services. Back in May, when the strike was first announced, Drew Barrymore had been a very avid supporter of the strike and had even, after her show went off in solidarity with the workers, she had even said, I'm going to step back from hosting the MTV VMAs in solidarity with the striking writers because that is also something that writers are involved with writing those those parts of award shows per this strikes terms any show that imply employs writers who are part of the wga has been halted and if they were to restart then they would be violating strike terms if the show continues with their regular wga writers during the strikes then they're asking union members to cross a picket line which is a big no-no And if the show continues without their regular WGA writers, then they are scabbing, which is the process of bringing in non-union workers to undermine the purpose of the strikes. Both of those paths undermine the purpose of the strike because the whole point is to have a collective group of people giving the same message to the the entity that they're organizing with or uh, bargaining with, like the employers or in this case, the studios, If the show runs and continues to ask their WGA writers to work on it, then it's asking people who are in their union to go against their union, which is going against their best interests and going against their community. If the show brings on non-union writers, then those people are undermining the collective work that the union is doing and... In many cases, someone who scabs is no longer eligible to be part of the union if they were to continue working in that industry after the strike is over. Scabbing also preys upon the kind of desperation that people have when they're in dire economic situations and is a way of pitting people of different classes against each other. For example, if someone who ends up taking a scab job is doing it because They need the money, and typically scabs are paid at a much higher rate than the union members, which is another shady thing to do to offer more money to someone who's not in the union when the union is asking for that increase in pay. So clearly you're able to do it, but you're only doing it with the purpose of breaking the strike. You're putting someone who is desperate for, obviously we need money to live, we need things like health insurance. You're pitting those people against their their own economic interests against their kind of collective economic interests. Because we all do better when unions do better. Unions are the reason that we have weekends. They're the reason that we have labor laws. They're the reason that you get to take breaks when you're at work. They're the reason why we get things like paid time off. If you get paid time off at your job, unions protect those things that benefit workers. So when you bring in a scab, you are sure at the moment, In the short term, helping the show to keep making money and paying the people who are scabs. But in the long run, it undermines the union and undermines those potential benefits in the future and undermines the person who's scabbing their ability to participate in the union after the strike ends. So shows like Drew Barrymore's talk show, which employs WGA writers, and I believe Drew herself is... I don't know if she's a member of WGA, but she's definitely a member of SAG-AFTRA, which is the Actors Guild, and they joined the strike in, I believe, June or July, sometime over the summer. So either way, she is impacted by this strike and should be very well aware of the terms of the strike and what actions she could take that would not violate the terms of the strike. So fast forward to this month, September of 2023. Barrymore announces that she's going to bring her show back on the air without her writers. So this is her kind of trying to take the third path. So not asking writers to cross the picket line, not scabbing, but saying that she's just not going to have writers. That she's going to basically improv her whole show so that the rest of the crew can continue to make money. She got massive, massive backlash on social media for the post that she made when she announced that the show was coming back. Part of the reason the backlash was so strong because she ended the statement with the phrase astute humility. And people took a lot of offense to that by saying, well, what's so humble about you bringing your show back? She also clarifies in her statement that her show was technically never shut down because of the strike. They had finished wrapping, or they had wrapped filming in April before the strike even started. So she actually hadn't done anything for the benefit of the strike. Her show was just naturally on hiatus. And this announcement was that, They were just going to continue on their regular filming schedule, even though the strike was going on. But this phrase, astute humility, was really the linchpin and had people making a lot of, I think, reasonably good points of, how humble is it for you to bring back a talk show that has your name in it when people are striking for the benefit of the field and the benefit of the craft in general over time she also connected the strike to the pandemic because her show had launched in 2020 during the pandemic and she had made she i you know i think part of what people like about her show is that she is a very empathetic and authentic human being and her show was a place where celebrities and famous people could come talk about things authentically during a time when there was very little opportunity to connect with people. The difference with The Strike is that it's Not a global pandemic that we are all helpless to, you know, do anything about. The strike would be over immediately if the studios would bargain in good faith with the writers and the actors. This is not something that just, like, happened out of the blue and we couldn't be prepared for. There was a very long negotiation process before the strike happened, and there continues to be a negotiation process that the studios are not engaging in. And we know they're not engaging in it because other studios have. The best example I've seen is the Studio A24, which makes a lot of horror films, so I I like A24. Within the first, like, month of the strike, A24 had agreed to all of the terms that the Writers Guild had, and they were exempted from the strike and able to begin producing movies again. So, if you've seen a movie trailer in the last few months or have seen, like, talk of new movies being shot, they're most likely all from A24 because A24 is the only studio that has been able to negotiate with the striking writers. So Drew's insistence that she has to come back to help people connect and to be there during a difficult time, just like she was there for people during the pandemic, is a little foolish because it is comparing apples to oranges. And taking this path and acting like the only choice she has is to violate strike terms did not sit well with people. So the backlash began after she posted the statement to Instagram and kind of went live with her decision to bring the show back. She also uses a lot of eye language to kind of make it seem like she made the decision, but a lot of people have speculated that maybe the network had pressured her um, and she was trying to make it go down easier by saying she was the one who came up with the decision. Several days after this statement was posted and she began to get the backlash, she posted a video where she was crying and offered a kind of apology, but doubled down on bringing her show back. I say that it's a kind of apology because she basically just spent the video giving an explanation for why she was going to bring the show back and it hinged on like other crew members needing work and not, you know, not getting paid while the show was on hiatus. Um, But she never really said like, I'm sorry for bringing the show back. She just was like, I'm doing it. And I feel bad that people are upset at me. Now, if you remember from my episode on Scandaval, Anatomy of an Apology, when the words, I'm sorry you felt that way, are part of your apology, it's not a genuine or good apology. So Drew Barrymore coming out and saying she's upset because people are upset with her, I, I think that that is true. We, uh, people don't feel good when people are upset, at them, but that's not what we're asking for an apology. That's not what an apology is about. The apology should be about the behavior that caused the harm, not the perception that someone has been harmed. So the backlash continued, and over the next few days, she then came out again and said she would continue to delay the show after getting feedback from fans and colleagues and knew now that her decision was harmful to the strike. Her actual statement reads, I have listened to everyone, and I am making the decision to pause the show's premiere until the strike is over. I have no words to express my deepest apologies to anyone I have hurt and, of course, to our incredible team who works on the show and has made what it is today. We really tried to find our way forward, and I truly hope for a resolution for the entire industry very soon. After she put this statement out, Jennifer Hudson, The Talk, and Bill Mayer also announced that they would not be moving forward with their shows as well, which really just indicates that having a powerful person make a statement can have a lot of influence. Drew Barrymore has more sway in the industry than Jennifer Hudson or Bill Mayer definitely more than Bill Maher. I can't even say his last name. I don't like him and I will do an episode on him one day but like Drew Barrymore has more influence in the field than he does even if he thinks he's the best. So her saying that she wasn't going to continue the show then put the pressure on these other celebrities who then followed along with her decision and paused their shows as well. This also was a better apology from the perspective of actually owning up to an action, and she doesn't say, I apologize if you felt hurt, she just says, I apologize for the hurt that I've done. The thing that is still missing is that she is pretending that this is the only option that she has that bringing the show back was the only way she could help out her crew. It is 100% not the only option that she has, and it is tough to see her continue to frame it in this way when literally five late-night hosts have started a fundraising podcast to be able to pay for their crew salaries while the strike continues. So there are options. In the last writer strike, people like Conan O'Brien paid for their writers and other crew members. They, he paid their salaries for the duration of the strike. There are other, uh, you know, productions that have fundraised for their crew and their writing staff to make it through the strike. There are strike funds that she could donate to. Like there are a lot of options, and there is. A very specific list of things that people are still allowed to do while the strike is happening so she could easily do that and if you go to her instagram you will see people giving her these suggestions giving her this feedback so i'm hoping that she can you know uh take in some of that feedback and maybe make those decisions instead of painting the strike as there's only one option forward I've also seen a lot of people talk about, well, there are other shows that are still running like live with Kelly and Mark or the Sherry Shepard show, but they're not getting the same amount of backlash. The first thing about that is most of those shows are not WGA. So they're not even being picketed by the union because they're not covered by the strike agreement. And the second part about why they're not getting so much backlash is that these shows don't didn't make statements about empathy and human resiliency and astute humility when they continued or restarted production. One of the articles I cited in, on the sources page was um, looked in, looking at her apology from the perspective of PR people. And the points that they were making in the article was basically like, Drew's Drew Barrymore's brand is that she's like authentic and empathetic and cares about people and is vulnerable and everyone who comes on her show like goes there with her. So framing her decision to premiere her show during a strike it was very counter to her brand and her uh, uh, essentially her message of we're scabbing to help people felt very disingenuous to her audiences people like Bill Maher, we expect them to make the worst decisions and to be the worst because he is the worst. But we don't expect that from Drew Barrymore. So, I mean, Bill Maher got a lot of backlash. And one of my favorite things to be looking at on Twitter in the last week was people reposting videos of him getting absolutely roasted by people on his show and being like, you need writers, bro. <laughs> you, like, you, you can't do it on your own. Um, but Drew Barrymore's whole brand is this authentic, empathy, and like connecting with people. So her just like the tone deafness and her inability for the first week to perceive why people were upset with her was, I think, really frustrating for her audience. And it didn't match with her brand. So people were not buying it. It did not feel authentic because it doesn't match with the way that she portrays herself. And I don't want to get into like brand versus real person because I think celebrities don't owe us their true personas. But what they present to us as their brand is what we expect to see from them. So when things don't match up with the brand or the, the parts of themselves that they package for consumption as part of their jobs, when those don't match up, you're going to get feedback about it. And so I think that Drew did deserve the backlash that she got. And I think now that she has listened, essentially, and taken a step back, now we can have different conversations and there doesn't need to be like a pile on of her. We're gonna take a quick break and when we get back, we're gonna talk about why does hounding her and collective bargaining actually work? Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And we're back. So Drew Barrymore's decision to reverse her original decision to bring back her show shows us the power of picketing and collective bargaining. The union was solid in their universal condemnation of her decision, which put pressure on her. When you have a large group of people with the same position that holds strong in that position, it is much harder to argue against that position. This is why the alt-right loves doing one-on-one debates, why they love debate culture. People like Steven Crowder got famous for pulling these stunts where he would go onto college campuses and basically scream at 18-year-olds until they got scared and then say he won the debate. When you can single someone off from their collective community or from their collective group, it is a lot easier to take down their position. When people are solid together in their position, even if there's like, even if there's disagreements within the community, but the kind of front-facing message is we you know we're all on the same page it's a lot harder to back down from that and so and the more people you have on a position the stronger that it becomes this is why collective bargaining is so important because in an employer versus employee relationship there's not a lot of power that the employee has but the more employees that take up the same position the more power that they have against the employer many of you may have had these kind of situations at work yourself where you found out that maybe you weren't being paid, like compensated fairly for the work that you're doing compared to your other coworkers, or maybe you're treated differently because of your gender or race in the workplace. And if you go to try to deal with it by yourself, you have to be a pretty tough cookie (laughs) to deal with that by yourself. It can be really hard to be on your own trying to confront someone who essentially holds the decision of do you get to keep this job or not in their hands. However, if you're able to band together with other employees, Your employer is not going to fire all of you. Well, I mean, they might if they're really trying to like blow their life up. But the likelihood of an employer firing all of their employees versus just firing you for being the person that has spoken up, it's a lot less likely that they'll fire everyone. So this this kind of collective bargaining, the purpose is to consolidate power among singular employees because in a one-on-one, they don't have as much power as their employer, but as a group they do. Striking is also a bit of a prisoner's dilemma. The workers are sacrificing their livelihoods to pressure the employers, and they only win if they all stay strong. One, if one employee like breaks off from the group, they they may win their individual prisoner's dilemma, but then the group loses as a whole because the strike has been undermined. This is what hap- this is what would have happened if Drew brought her show back she is taking steps away from the group position and would potentially be putting people in a position where they either had to leave their strike or they had to scab during the strike and then the pa- the power starts to shift the employer sees their opportunity to not respect the demands of the employees and the people in the union will have sacrificed their their livelihoods their money to then not win the benefits of the strike, so that's why it's so important to all stay on the same page, because this, a bit, this like power imbalance is what's at the core of union bargaining. And a lot of the backlash that Drew got was not from union—I mean, it was from union members—but a lot of the backlash she got online was from people who are not in the union and don't necessarily benefit from directly benefit from the union, who were still giving her this feedback. A lot of her fans were saying, hey, we are in solidarity with the strike, we expect you to be in solidarity with the strike, this goes against the values that you have claimed to have, make this make sense to us. So even the solidarity of people who are not directly in the union or not directly in the industry is still important solidarity to have. You may have seen these kind of slogans. It's like, if one, if one person strikes, then we all strike. Or, you know, if one union strikes, we all do. The idea behind this is that solidarity is made stronger the more people that participate in it. And this goes for even people that are way, way, way outside of the field, right? Like, I, I'm not a writer. I'm not anywhere near or close to the entertainment industry. But I stand in solidarity with the strikers. And if they were to say, we ask you to boycott certain media because of the strike then I would do that in solidarity with the strikers because I know that I, I actually do benefit from the strike in multiple ways. One is that if the strike is successful and the workers get their benefits, then it continues to set a precedent for other strikes that may impact the industry that I am in. If Amazon is able to be unionized, then it makes it easier for other retail stores to be unionized. If Starbucks is able to unionize, then it makes it easier for other types of restaurants to unionize. If Kaiser is able to, well, they are union, but if they're able to um, like, win the strikes that they go on, then it makes my industry easier to unionize and get benefits for in mental health. So in a way, whenever a, a strike is successful, it kind of buoys us all because it makes it more likely that the next strike will be successful. And in this case specifically, I benefit from writers getting paid well and getting compensated for their work. My whole podcast here is based on pop culture and media. I can't do the thing that I love to do if there aren't good writers out there creating the shows that I like to pick apart on the show. I can't enjoy for self-care watching TV or movies that I really like if it weren't for writers and actors. So the kind of benefit of my life, the good parts of my life, I mean, TV is not the only good thing in my life, but one of the good things in my life is directly impacted by the writers being fairly compensated, not being burned out, and not being exploited so that they can continue to make the art that I enjoy and I know a lot of us enjoy. So all that to say, it is so important for the union to be able to be as solid as possible and have as much support as possible because this power imbalance is so big. I will also note that something that is different about the WGA strikes compared to some of the other strikes, at least in the discourse that we have about them, is that there's a perception about this strike that it's only for rich people, so why should the average Joe care? And in fact, one of the villains of the strike, one of the people who's push this narrative the most is bill maher who has gone out on i don't know what he's doing now he's like doing these little twitter interviews or whatever he's gone out in on his platforms to say that this strike is a waste of time because writers a lot of the writers are like really rich or really successful and they are you know putting everyone else at a risk for losing their jobs because they're so greedy and they just want more money and he's not the only one who says this, but he's just my personal supervillain. <laughs> but I've seen people say this. I've seen like my colleagues, like my friends say things like this, or people that I know in real life say this that why should we care so much? Like it's people in Hollywood, they are rich. This comes from our bias that union workers or union jobs are typically lower class, lower intelligence. Um, jobs that we would call neck down jobs so you don't need too much intelligence to do them this is a a bias that our culture has particularly in american culture and it serves to continue to divide people by their social class just and it's, it's difficult because it's like well on one hand when i say union worker you probably have an image in your head that pops up of like a blue collar job a lower class person who you know works like a really grueling job and they need to have their union to protect them which is like on one hand yeah they do they do need their union to protect them but it also like gives this kind of paternalism to poor people being like oh well they're they're too stupid to get a good job with good benefits so they need the union to protect them it's a it's a very like paternalizing perspective that we have for lower or working class people and then on the other side this idea that because someone has a job that we associate with prestige like a writer on a tv show because you have a prestigious job you must have A lot of money, and that is never the case. (laughs) Like very rarely does prestige come with money in the same way. Most of the wealthiest people in the world, you don't know what their names are. They don't have the same prestige that you might think someone should have when they're rich. Same goes for writers. Like they, they really don't make that much money. And if you look into the um, the strike literature, you'll see kind of what the going rate is for your average writer. Not everybody is a Mike Schur making The Office, Parks and Rec, and The Good Place, right? A lot of these writers are writing on shows like The Middle or shows like, or like uh, you know, late night shows. Like they're writing the jokes on late night shows and they may make, you know, decent money doing that, but they don't work all year round they're kind of like teachers where there's there's big hiatuses and so the money that they make for one job needs to cover them for the year much like teachers need to be paid enough to cover them through the summer. So our bias about what a union worker or a typical union worker is is d- damaging in twofold. It damages lots of types of jobs because we assume that if you are in a union it means you're like too dumb to have a quote-unquote good job and so we kind of relegate union status to this uh like less desirable class of a person and then when industries that we perceive as prestigious go on strike it's easy for people to undermine the strike because this bias is like, well, they they shouldn't need a union because they have smart people jobs. They have good people jobs. Aaron Sorkin is also someone who does this a lot where he talks about how like, well, I'm rich, so why aren't all writers rich? And it's like, I don't know, dude, maybe like look around, (laughs) maybe take the temperature of the room. Um, But this doesn't need to turn into another we need to talk about episode about Aaron Sorkin or Bill Maher. I'll save those for later. Um, But, yeah, I just want to note that I think the perception of the strike is something that the writers have had to work against very hard in this situation that other unions have not had to fight in the same way. And I think, you know, my perspective on it is, okay. there may be a few people who are pretty rich and they've gotten very wealthy from being writers and they're going to benefit from the strike it's okay if a few rich people benefit if the rest of the people who are like literally working class writers also benefit, right? The people who need like need this job and aren't you know just able to do it for the art or you know, have made it in the field like those people deserve the benefits even if it means a few rich people get it as well. It's the same argument for healthcare, right? People will be like, well, if we have universal healthcare, then billionaires won't have to pay for doctors do they really pay for doctors now anyway? <laughs> like, Or the amount they're paying, is it really a, a, a dent in their wealth? I, I don't think that's the biggest issue. I think the bigger issue is that there are a lot more people that are not getting healthcare that would benefit, even if a few wealthy people benefit alongside them. And then lastly, I just wanted to go through a couple of points from this article I read in the Analysis of Social Issues in Public Policy Journal. The author's last name is Lot, and it was published in 2014. You can find the citation for it on my sources page. But this author was talking a lot about how psychology does not pay attention to unions and doesn't pay attention to kind of labor and class issues. And they went through some points about why unions have psychological importance, which is why psychologists should pay attention to them. And I thought their points were really interesting, so I want to share and discuss some of them here. The first psychological benefit of a union is that they contribute to what is called the moral economy of the workplace. This is done by unions increasing and reinforcing the idea of fairness among employees. This is something that can help an individual employee feel like their workplace is more fair when a union is active in that workplace. It also bolsters a broader, the broader civil rights movement that unions have been integral in getting more protections for things like race and gender identities in the workplace. The more values that the workplace can support by making sure things are fair, that employees are paid, the wages that they are due, that nobody is discriminated against based on their identities, the more that those things happen, the more robust the moral economy is. And the more robust the moral economy is, the better people feel about their jobs, right? If you were to go to your job every day, and maybe some of you do this, you go to your job every day and you just feel like, The boss plays favorites, there are people who get special perks because they're friends with the boss or just because of who they are, like maybe the men in your workplace or the women in your workplace get treated better than other gender identities. If you go to that every day, that is really going to wear on your psychological well-being. And if you don't feel psychologically well at work, you are more likely to burn out and be dissatisfied with your job. So unions not only provide these kind of like materialistic protections like benefits, pay raises, time off, but they support this general kind of environment of the workplace that helps people to feel like I have a place here and I will be treated fairly when I come to this place. Uh, According to the article, participating in unions can increase a worker's opportunities for relationships in the workplace, can help create a sense of cohesiveness by working toward positive goals, uh, create an increased sense of community, and give workers an increased sense of control through the grievance process. I think I've talked about this on episodes in the past, but we have a lot of research that shows when people work on a goal together, especially a positive goal like bargaining for increased pay, when people work on those goals together, it builds a much tighter group dynamic than if people are not working toward a goal or have disparate goals within the group. So unions are kind of a nice way to facilitate the sense of cohesiveness because the union has one goal in all situations, and that's to protect the workers the specific goals may like different, right? Like in the writer's case, it, it may be things about like residuals and AI and the auto workers. It may be about like safety in the factory and their pay as well. But at the end of the day, the goal is about protecting workers. This creates a cohesive goal that people can work on together. And when they look around at each other, know, hey, these people want the same thing that I want. And it builds those social connections, Feeling socially connected at work doesn't just help how you feel at work, but it can help your overall sense of well-being. We know from lots of past research that social connectedness is positively associated with subjective well-being, which means I feel better and rate myself as doing better when I am more socially connected. So having something in the workplace that increases that sense of cohesiveness will help you to feel better in the rest of your life, too. Not that it means you're bringing work home with you, but just that having a place where you have that social connectedness will increase your well-being. Union membership is also positively associated with job satisfaction, which, as my I.O. friends will tell you, is an important for keeping workers at jobs and reducing job stress. If people are not satisfied with their job, they are not going to do it as well as if they are satisfied. It's not the end-all be-all of things that help people do good at their jobs, but it is an important factor to keep in mind. The article also points out, and this was written in 2014, so I don't know if the numbers have changed, but basically half of U.S. workers have no paid sick days. This means that if you are a U.S. worker and you are sick, your kid is sick, or you need a break to take care of your mental health, you have to balance, do I take the day off work to take care of myself or my family, or do I forgo the money that I might make this day? Having this decision of do I make money today or not always ride on if I will take my time off makes it an incredibly imbalanced decision. This is also part of why the pandemic was so bad here is because people don't take time off when they're sick in the U.S. People come to work with flus and colds all the time because they're making this decision. Do I stay home and take care of myself or do I skip out on pay for a few days? That can make or break someone's ability to pay their rent or pay their utilities or handle an emergency that comes up like emergency car repairs. Taking a few days off work with no pay is not a luxury that all all U.S. workers can afford. So having no access to paid sick days is not good for their psychological well-being. Unions provide these types of protections. These are the things that people fight for when they go on strike. So we need unions because employers are not providing for us. right? If half of the US workers have no paid sick days, who do you think is responsible for giving them those sick days? It's the employer. But the employers are not doing it on their own. They, are, they have a different goal. They're not aligned with the goal of protecting the workers. And so we need unions to protect workers, not only for these kind of tangible benefits, like having access to paid sick days, having family leave, having the right amount of pay and access to things like health insurance, But we also need them to provide the psychological and social support in the workplace. Employees need to be able to look around and say, I know that I can count on these people who are here doing my job with me. No matter if your job is inputting data into an Excel sheet or bolting together wheels on an assembly line unions support everyone from a psychological standpoint and from a financial standpoint. So I hope that I have made my position clear here that I stand in solidarity with the WGA strike. I stand in solidarity with all the other strikes that are going on. And I hope that if you had any like, well, I I don't know if this strike is important because these people are rich Hollywood folks. I hope that you'll consider that bias and think about where does that come from and who does it help? Who does that bias support? Does it support workers or does it support employers who don't want to take care of their employees? I think I asked that question in a way that leads you to the perspective that I have, but it's just, it's something that I would ask you to consider. And I do think that we can look at these strikes and look at the kind of psychological way that messages are gotten across. And it's always better to have people on your side to support your message. The more people that we can get to support us, the more successful we are going to be in life and in work. So uh, that's the end of the episode for today. I just want to say, as always, thank you for listening all the way to the end, and I will see you in the next one. Bye-bye!